Welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast, brought to you by the students at the University of Minnesota Medical School. I'm your host, David Wu, and today my guest is Dr. Daniel Tse, a product manager at Google Health. Dr. Tse's path to healthcare and AI is an unconventional one, and I think that you, the listener, will greatly enjoy hearing him tell his story. One of the things we talk about near the end is something that I find is applicable to anyone in any career, and that is the doubt that comes when you wonder if the path you're on is the right path. And if maybe there's a path out there that might be a better fit for you. I can't say that we've discovered the perfect answer in this interview, but I will say that Dr. Tse is someone who has thought deeply about this question, as you can see from his unique career, and will probably provide some good words of advice. I had a real pleasure recording this interview, and I hope you all enjoy it. My guest today is Dr. Daniel Xie, or Tse. He is currently a product manager at Google Health. I was wondering, Daniel, if you could tell us a bit about your path and how you eventually got involved in healthcare and AI. Yeah, I have a pretty non-traditional path, obviously. I started off being interested in tech at a pretty early age. I think I was just lucky. My parents uh, were professors when I was growing up, and so we had access to computers and technology, mostly through my mom's lab and my dad's lab uh, early. So just got interested there. Are you like com- computer scientist? No, my mom did actually did like laboratory science, uh, like benchtop science. And then my dad was a civil engineer. Wow. And so they just were, you know, there's computer labs uh, around. And then they eventually for their labs had computers and then, you know, brought home long time ago, like early, x86 architecture type stuff <clears throat> excuse oh my me God. like uh, so my first computer was a 286 like back in the day running like windows like two point something i can't even remember what it was called but wow. either way i was mostly interested in early on for the games so i mostly played uh, a bunch of old school games and uh what kind of games later did they have on back then? what'd you say what kind of games did they have back then <sighs> the games i remember Earliest on, I mean, obviously, like Minesweeper and stuff and, and Solitaire. Uh, and then actually, before even that, like we had computer labs with those like Apple IIe's and Apple, like the, the green, the Apple's that had, only had green screens. I don't know if you remember those or not, probably before your time. That's but before my time. I mean, like Oregon Trail when it first came out oh and, uh, and uh, all those like retro games that have like come around to be hip again. Like Conan the Barbarian was another game I played a lot of. And, uh, is there um a number of other games uh there's actually something else there's an amazon trail too actually oh. that was another game i played and uh a couple others but yeah mostly early on i was interested in the video games as i got older i went to a lot of nerd camps over the summer as i'm sure many of your listeners did as well and did um like programming camps randomly in, in the sort of, I grew up in a college town, so I was fortunate to have that in, in the surrounding area and some web dev camps. And uh, they were just kind of like either at the schools, the the school, public school system or in all these nerd camps. So kind of a passive interest. And I was lucky enough in, in high school to do AP computer science early on. And that at the time was teaching C++. And so I was not good. There were some like just brilliant people in, in a lot of these classes and I kind of was just there, but I soaked up enough of the concepts 
and had various opportunities uh, in high school and then in college to just do some stuff on the side or work with other folks doing stuff. So, you know, tech followed through into college. I did a lot of benchtop research in high school and in college and got really burnt like out. Bench, like wet, wet lab? Wet like lab, exactly. Life yeah, wet lab research. Yeah, in yeah. High life school. Life. Yeah, I think, you know, again, this is because my parents wow. are professors. They're like, in addition to all the other summer jobs kids typically get, you also have to work in a lab and try oh it out. <laughs> I'll try it out. And uh, I, it was all right. I, I wasn't, I'm not a very patient person or methodical person in many ways. And so I think like a lot of pre-med and medical students who do this work, you know, some really love it. I think many find out that they don't like it, which is why they go into something like medicine. I think I just found out earlier than everyone else because I started earlier than everyone else. So probably midway through college, I was like, I've done a couple of years of this. I don't know if I want to keep doing it. And I was lucky actually, the lab I was working at the time was pioneering uh, high throughput assays uh, for epigenetics. And so at the time, because they were doing some of this early work in epigenetics compared to other uh, types of interrogation techniques, there weren't a lot of the computational tools you need to just deal with that kind of data. And I wasn't particularly technical, and, but the, the lab was like, hey, you're young and no computers, maybe. Uh, I happened to be doing an IT job at the time at the hospital as well. And they were like, do you just wanna like do some bioinformatics stuff? And I had no idea what that was at the time. And, and this is early in the, earlier in the days of systems biology being popularized. And, and I got lucky enough to get a fellowship to the NCI to learn that, basically to learn in my lab, and they, they just paid NCI, me. like work. National Cancer Institute? Or? Yeah, exactly, oh, sorry, wow. yeah, National Cancer Institute. And so uh, I just spent a summer learning from a great, um, a great, I think he was a postdoc at the time, but he was basically just taught me R and taught me all wow. these computation techniques. And I mean, I was, again, not that good, but picked up enough to do a research project and, and kind of got very interested at the intersection of number of these disciplines together. Um, so cool. So this is as an undergrad, right? Yeah, I, and I want to emphasize, wow. I was not good, but this is the great thing about being in school is people will give you a shot at anything, even if you're not that mm -hmm. good. And so I had a lot of patient teachers and I kind of saw the power of, of bringing together things like math, stats, science, you know, Compu uh, computational work and stuff like that. And, and that was kind of like what piqued my interest. And uh, as I went into medical school, I kind of continued that interest. I, I knew actually going into medical school that I wanted to do something non-traditional and told a lot of my, well, I told all of my uh, medical schools that I wanted to do something atypical, non-traditional, industry focused. And during medical school, when a lot of folks are doing traditional research or traditional clinical work, I would try to work for tech startups or do consulting. Wait, do you mind if we pause for a second and kind of Absolutely. rewind? Like, I'm curious, like why, uh, so I get that, you know, you're very interested in technology, but like where did the medicine interest come in too? Yeah, the medicine interest was, I kind of stumbled into it more than anything else. And this is probably where I have a little bit more of a difference than a lot of other folks because I didn't come to my interest in medicine until much later. And so I was much more interested generally in service-related work. You know, I was very interested in education. 
And I happened to be doing some undergraduate work in science, uh, but then spent a lot of time in the hospital, working in the lab, obviously, and then doing IT for the hospital and kind of getting exposed to that. I hadn't spent a ton of time, but the laboratory work I'd done in, in high school and in college was all revolved around like healthcare and, and cancer and things like that. And so mm. uh, I became very interested in that. Honestly, I wasn't super like gung ho about medicine specifically until much later in my undergrad near, near the time when most people are applying. And it was kind of a combination of wanting to do mission or service-based work, wanting to be interested in science and helping people, but not being particularly interested in the wet labs work and uh, kind of being fascinated by how you can help people with that combination of interests. And so that's kind of what had me fall into medicine. I think I could have done a lot of other things too. And it just happened to be medicine was, was an opportunity for me after undergrad. And that's kind of the way I went. Mm. So you're saying yeah. you were like you were going into these interviews, and I feel like you know you're definitely a very unique candidate. But, but I guess yeah. off the bat, you were just telling them like, yeah. I think it was probably obvious from my personal statement that I was an atypical candidate. But yeah, definitely in the interview phase, they're like, "What are you interested in?" And uh, you know, I think because I had a number of other interests that I was pursuing, you know, considering either a PhD or going into startups. Uh, you know, I had kind of a startup at the time doing ed tech related work. Wow. Uh, I, it actually allowed me to relax in the interview process and the selection process for medical school. I think in combination be, me being relaxed, also me being pretty upfront about my interests. I was a very polarizing candidate. So people either really liked me or they really didn't. <laughs> and so, you know, I was fortunate enough to get into a couple of medical schools and I found a medical school that was very supportive of this uh, non-traditional pursuit. And actually they were like, oh, that's really cool. Like we have a program like that we're building up around MD, MBA related work and you should go talk to them. And that was, that was kind of, you know, as you were talking about earlier, uh, really just, getting to uh, your school and really enjoying it there in spite of the cold weather and everything else. It's kind of similar to me. I was, you know, I went to Dartmouth Medical School and I remember being interviewing on a really cold and snowy day, but everyone was like really happy and really open to non-traditional pursuits and very interested in teaching. And so that's kind of what made me fall in love and, and go in that direction. Yeah. So then, uh, then what happened next after med school? Yeah, actually, so for me, it's a little even more atypical from there. So originally, I was thinking about doing the MD-MBA program. Uh, I ended up not doing that. After going through the first three years of uh, medical school, and I went straight from undergrad to medical school, um, I was pretty burnt out on sitting in the classroom or you know being in the clinic and things like that. And so uh, instead of immediately pursuing the MBA, I was... I basically asked the administration, was like, is it okay if I like take a, a year off? Because a lot of people take a year off, right, to do clinical research, other types of work. Um, is a year off to go get some industry experience and see what it's like truly at the intersection of healthcare and technology. And they're like, yeah, sure. And then I, there was like kind of made the case that, you know, I want to come back and do the MBA and then come back with some like real world experience to bring to the class and everything else like that, as well as to put in perspective all the, the work that I'd be doing. So they're like, okay. And I basically just cold emailed a bunch of companies in the Valley and 
was like, hey, here's my situation. I am interested in getting some experience. I want to take a, you know, a year off and work as an intern. Will you hire me? And most companies were like, no. <laughs> but there were a couple that said yes. And uh, so I basically just, at my last day, I think my last rotation, I want to say in third year was pediatrics, I want to say. I can't even remember. And then the next day I moved out and wow. I drove across the country. You drove? Um, oh my goodness. New Hampshire with like basically everything I could fit in my Prius. And then I what? drove the country to California. Fortunately, I had a friend that drove with me uh, and we just did a road trip out of it. And then I That's started awesome. work a week later. Oh my and goodness. Yeah, it was pretty gnarly, but I think that, you know, Silicon Valley is a place that will take chances on people and try crazy stuff. And so mm -hmm. they're just like, great, if you can help out and, and you're willing to work for basically nothing <laughs> um, or, and, you know, get equity instead, like, you know, we'll, we'll give you a shot. And so I, I joined a startup. I didn't. Was it like really, a healthcare startup? Yeah, I, did, I joined a healthcare startup, but it wasn't a great fit. <clears throat> but, you know, I was lucky early on. I found a, a, another startup right afterwards and uh, joined that company, which ended up becoming doing a lot of growth during my time there. And so um, I ended up needing to stay through a number of other things. I, I joined that startup, was there for a couple of years. And a then couple actually, of years? Yeah. So yeah, this ends up like extending out longer because I ended up staying there a couple of years and I joined another startup. Wow. And then- And this whole time you're a third year med student technically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And so then oh the- God. And then the school eventually, after about three years, they're like, "You need to like come back, or, <laughs> or, or, or just like you know, be done with medical school." I was like, "Okay." So I ended up going back and splitting time at the startup and finishing my fourth year. Oh my uh, God. And then I ended up not doing the MBA because I was like, "Well, I've got some work experience now. I don't know if I need it uh, for myself, at least at this stage in my life." And then basically just continued to work, and that's that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. And so no residency, right? <laughs> No residency yet. Is that a tough decision? Oh, no, yeah, yet, yeah. yet? <laughs> oh. I think I always, well, maybe we'll come back to that later, but yeah, no yeah. residency yet. I think um, I, it was a very tough decision. Uh, it's something I like, especially during my, those three and years and change completely off uh, of medicine or med school. I, it's something that I thought about probably the most in that time. And actually, I leaned very closely to just dropping out and just continuing wow. to work in tech. But I was very fortunate, like the company I was working with at the time was very accommodating and very supportive. And they're like, OK, you know, for six months, because I didn't have that much time left to finish med school, you know, go back and finish and then work part time here and uh, you can finish out your MD and things like that. So I ended up doing that. But I think it was actually like in that six, it was like probably six to nine months of work that I really developed a great appreciation um, for even greater appreciation, I should say, for clinical care. You know, once you see how it works in the industry and then once you go back to what academia is like and then, you know, put yourself in the clinic 24-7, like you, or clinical mindset 24-7, you really get a great appreciation for how special clinical care is. And that's why I think that's what, I think there never would have been a yet had I dropped out, but because I went mm. back in my fourth year, uh, which is obviously a little bit more open-ended, free-form. You can kind of pick yeah. a little bit more what you're interested in, explore that. Uh, I, it made me 
always probably have something in the back of my mind of like going back into the traditional track at some point, maybe. But do you feel a little rusty at all going back into it? Oh man, yes. <laughs> I basically had to reteach myself everything. Oh that my was goodness. that was intense because I was basically in the tech world completely for over three years, and um, I had to reteach myself basically everything. The good news is in that time that I was off, the amount of online tools on YouTube, mm. courses mm. and things like that just matured so greatly. And that's a testament to the power of technology for good, potentially at least, is uh, man, it was much easier. And actually I think like you could get, you could find instructors, you could find course materials that really resonated with you uh, really well, especially once you kind of knew what you were looking for and, and that really helped get things up to speed. But, you know, I, a lot of credit to my medical school for supporting me and for a lot of my, uh, at, you know, the attendings and the residents and the fellows and everyone else who were patient and, you know, helped teach me <laughs> to basically start from nothing again. You know, it's wow. funny, I saw a lot of my old classmates who were at the hospital <laughs> who are now oh. like residents and stuff like that. And they were like, <laughs> You know, they were very uh, helpful too and, and pointing me towards resources to get up to speed as fast as possible, which is nice. Mm -hmm. But yes, it was, uh, I wouldn't recommend anyone to take that particular path because it was a, a big pain in the butt to relearn everything. Yeah, three years of med school, three years of tech, and then back to med school. Yeah, yeah. And it's, then back to tech after, huh? And then back to tech afterwards. So I, I think by the time I learned a lot more about what I might have been interested in, in terms of a medical career by that time, I was past when you probably would have needed to be serious about applying for residencies. And so mm -hmm. I was like, well, I could take a year off and then work in tech and then just give it some thought uh, throughout the year. And if I really wanna go after you know, a particular specialty, then I would do that. And I ended up just keep working, keeping in tech, mm -hmm. working there. And, uh, but it definitely is something that I think about uh, quite a bit, and uh, we'll probably continue to think about uh, for a long time. Oh, man. Just curious, if you, if you were to go back, which specialty would you want to go into? Well, now I don't know. I mean, I've been out for, I graduated eventually. <laughs> and, uh, 20, uh, my original graduating class, I think, was 2012, and I ended up graduating in 2015. I think that's oh, right. Congratulations. And, it's relatively yeah. recent. <laughs> relatively recent. So I don't know now. I think at the time I was interested, in, I became very interested in neurology and then eventually neurointerventional radiology. Mm -hmm. I, I did a lot of rotations and I kind of fell in love with it. I did rotations in neurology first and then I did rotations in a clinic doing a lot of uh, neurodegenerative disease here in, in the Bay Area. And they did a lot of ALS and things like that. And this is right around the time actually the ice bucket challenge was going crazy. And so oh, wow. really exciting time to think about the possibilities for those kinds of diseases. And then I, I also did some rotations in uh, neurointerventional and really loved that as well. So I, I think at baseline, I really enjoyed the specialties where you're like operating and things like that. But I like the combination in neurointerventional of interventional work plus neurology as well so who knows i mean that unfortunately too as i was thinking about it is a very long track of training so that was another thing that gave me pause to immediately go back into it mm. so i guess uh now let's talk about like so from graduating in 2015 
to now 2020, yeah. what do those yeah. five years look like? Yeah, it's it's another non-traditional track. I continued working at that startup for maybe a little over a year at least uh, after that. And then I took off some time. Uh, uh, I was pretty tired by that point. I would definitely not recommend anyone working and doing medical school at the oh, same yeah. time. Uh, that definitely really stressed me out. So I took off some time, actually did did a lot more, uh, did a much deeper dive into coding at that time during my time off, uh, working with some friends, actually did like a coding boot camp in, in C programming randomly, uh, which is kind of a very low level programming language. And I then began consulting actually for uh, Google. And so oh, a friend cool. of mine had started this group inside of Google Brain, which is the deep learning research division at Google. And they had begun looking at applied ML for medicine. And so this is around the time when Google's investing in a lot. It's probably, they probably started that group in uh, around 2015, probably. And so they started to figure out, okay, you know, we've done a lot of great work at Google doing ML and applying like cutting edge ML techniques to the consumer products that everyone knows, search, YouTube, maps, you name it. And they began looking into ways of taking a lot of those applications, as well as the new basic science ML that was coming out and trying to apply it to new areas. They you know, look at divisions in robotics, art, music, security, all these other kinds of things. And medicine was one of these things that they started to try and invest a little bit into. And it was actually, I think, a 20% project for those of you oh, who don't know cool. at Google, yeah, yeah. you can do anything you want with 20% of your time. Uh, yeah, obviously, you have to like make sure you're getting the rest of your job done. But it's, it's kind of a important part of the Google culture because it's born a lot of the uh, really cool things like Gmail and a lot of other really cool things that have developed into really world-class products at Google. And so it became a 20% project for a number of engineers who knew the computer vision space. And they solved a lot of problems for say like Google Photos or search and things like that. And they're looking at some of these problems in medicine and they were like, hey, these have the same basic building blocks as the problems in some parts of medical imaging. And so this group kind of spent a lot of time doing nights and weekends related work uh, and in the spare 20% time to see if it was possible to bridge some of these deep learning techniques to medicine. And, and they ultimately did some hackathons internally and um, scrounged rather some budget to try and explore the ophthalmology space to start. And so a friend that I'd rotated with in medical school, also she was wanting to do a non-traditional career and we would always kept in touch. And so she got this group started and did a lot of the early research uh, that ultimately became a, a JAMA paper, I think back in 2016, I wanna say it was published and looking at diabetic retinopathy. And so as this team is getting some steam and some legs after they showed that initial win, uh, she, because I had some background in business development, uh, she was wondering if I could come help out with that and some uh, product management related work that they were getting started with. And so I started off uh, early on when I was kind of taking that break, mostly just hanging out at Google, getting the free food, uh, <laughs> talking to parents, stuff like that. But after a while, she was like, hey, do you want to help out a couple hours a week? And initially, again, I was like, I want to relax <laughs> and take some time off. But uh, you know, over time, the, the power of kind of what they were doing was so interesting. I was like, OK, I'll help out a couple hours a week. And then here I am now, <laughs> many years oh, nice. later, uh, working full time. So 
that's uh, kind of what led me to, into AI and medicine. That's super cool. Yeah. Wow. Just curious, did she also uh, like kind of do medicine? At your your friend that that brought you into Google, yeah. did she like yeah. do med school and then like kind of take yeah. two years off? Did she have like a similar thing? Like, did she finish med school? She finished med school. So she was an MD. Uh, her name is Lily Peng. She was an MD PhD at UCSF. And oh, cool. she had a background in uh, chemical engineering before. So there's obviously quite a, a quantitative and technical mind already. And we rotated together in OBGYN in my first stint in medical school. And uh, she, I think, she, I want to say maybe she was in her fourth year. I can't remember or not, but uh, she was coming off of her PhD and knew that she wanted to explore non-traditional work as well. Instead of, I guess her break was for the PhD. So she didn't take any additional breaks and then went straight into tech afterwards. Mm. And then wow. so when she went to tech, because I took my time off, I think we both went into tech roughly around the same time and then kept in touch uh, because obviously we both knew we had similar interests. That's awesome. Yeah. So I guess uh, this is a perfect segue. In your words, what does Google Health do? Well, Google Health does a lot of things. Google Health, you know, eventually, you know, that, that group I was talking about that came out of Google Brain, we called ourselves Medical Brain and the medical sort of applied division for deep learning. You know, as we started doing more and more projects, we started looking at different types of data. You know, the team that I worked on primarily focused on medical imaging, although I did some uh, audio data related projects. And we had a team that looked at text data. We had a team that looked at continuous monitoring data or time series data. And each of those teams similarly kind of began proving out that there's something there. Or there's a there there to an intersection between technology, deep learning, AI, medicine. And so as those teams grew and, and had more wins and publications and things like that, then the org decided to form a division at Google formally to look at health. And at Google, we call them PAs or product areas. So like Chrome is a product area or Geo is a product area that has like maps and earth and stuff like that. Um, so they formed a division or a PA as we call it again. And there's sort of four major divisions that Google Health has. There's a division that focuses on consumer-related applications. There's a team that focuses on clinician tools. Tools typically may be dealing more with primary care, internal medicine, or something like that. And there's a team, my team, that focuses on imaging and diagnostics. And our fourth team is a, a kind of a pure research and innovations team. And the imaging and diagnostics division slash research and innovation division kind of work together very closely and then help feed into the other, uh, other divisions as well. And so, you know, what we do is taking the world-class technology that we have and the unique perspective on global scale technology and try and build tools that can help as many people as possible. And that's kind of the mission, you know, where that will take the team, uh, we'll see, but you know, we're excited by some of the early work that we're engaged in across those different divisions. I'm curious, uh, you know, you mentioned like these wins, that, the early wins that you guys had, such as like the publication in JAMA. You guys had uh, a big paper that recently came out last or this year in Nature. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. wondering, like, is that uh, like a key metric for you guys, like publications? And I'm also I'm also curious like, what are, are you guys kind of like a lab? You know what I mean? Like, like what's the difference between your, like your PA or your product area and like, you know, a lab in academia? 
Yeah, that, there's a couple of interesting questions in there. I think to your first question around publications and metrics, I don't think it's explicitly a metric. I think what we endeavor to do with our publications is uh, as best as possible show our work and show how we're approaching deep learning, show how we're setting up these experiments and then get clinical and scientific scrutiny. You know, ML and AI is at such an early stage that the world is figuring out how it wants to think about these kind of tools and this technology and where Google can help by showing how it's done things, learn from others, how you know other groups, academic companies or otherwise do things. I think that helps raise the level of debate and advance mm -hmm. the whole field forward. And so publications are important because it does allow us to put our work out there in a structured format. Uh, it, it generates quite a bit of discussion, which we think is important. And you know, if any of those discoveries end up becoming products, then hopefully there's more trust in the process of how those products were made. So yeah. it's not exactly a, a metric, but it's important to, for us to build trust. It's important for us to you know, help the whole ML community and the whole medical community think about the concepts. You know, again, as we were, I was talking about earlier, we're lucky to have done ML uh, and AI for a lot of different types of applications at a global scale for a long time, and we've learned a lot. Um, that being said, you know, there's a lot of very fascinating research and product development going out there, and so we just want to play our part as best as we can. Mm. Uh, and I guess onto the second part of that question, like, could you compare and contrast? what you guys do versus a traditional lab in academia like yeah. focused on like research in healthcare and AI? I would say we're an interesting blend and there's kind of different approaches. The different divisions, you know, as I was talking about before, consumer clinician tools all have different product focuses. The team that I work on, imaging and diagnostics and, and research and innovation, those divisions, because we look to push the envelope, we do work a little bit like a lab, uh, but we also take the advantage of the resources and approaches of uh, an industry company as well. So we're obviously don't have to work through the granting process as much as an academic lab would have to do. That's pretty uh, awesome, we, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, probably the R and D, like top of the funnel related work, functions the closest to like a lab. You know, we try crazy stuff. We get partners oftentimes in academia or other parts of industry to work together and understand the data, try out different things. Um, so from that aspect at the top of the funnel, it's probably quite similar, you know, probably where a lab uh, usually ends things is a publication because that is the metric by which at least a lot of professors are measured when it comes to tenure and other things like that. So probably where we differ the most is where we take some of the most promising things is then we start to look at what does productionization look like? What is the mm. go to market strategy look like? What does regulatory scrutiny or regulatory communications look like for a product like that? And so when it gets into getting things out into the outside world that uh, doctors, patients, and other administrators can use. That's probably where it starts to diverge a little bit more. But early on, I mean, we have a ton of folks with PhDs, MDs, um, people with backgrounds in research, clinical trials that are backing a lot of the early R&D, and that might look very similar to an academic lab. And then as we get closer, closer to building out products, then 
uh, I imagine a lot of labs, that's where they would decide maybe to spin off some, like some IP and then uh, do something with the university along those lines. Mm. My next question is, uh, this might be a little um, tough, but you know, I feel like I should still ask it. I feel like, you know, in traditionally in academia, there's, uh, you know, academia is not perfect. Uh, there is a little bit of conflict of interest, uh, especially, you know, with professors and publications. But uh, I'm curious, you know, as a company doing research that, uh, like you said, and that sometimes you want it to like go to market mm -hmm. or you want to like create a product. Do you think there's any inherent conflict of interest in the, the research that you guys do? You know, I think it's a good question. I think a lot of what we try to focus on is sticking to a lot of those research principles to start. And that's why we cap our early stage R&D uh, on the publication side to ensure that early on, especially when we're rooting out the rooting out an understanding of the early concepts of what these models can do, how you should evaluate them, that we're doing it in a way that aligns with how academia would want to scrutinize a lot of these models. And so that's the endeavor. You know, we don't always get it right. And, and you know, when we publish, people definitely let us know. And we learn a lot from that. And hopefully the industry learns a lot from that. And from there, you know, as we take those things through the next stages of productionization, we continue to work and, and talk quite a bit with academia. And, and we actually start to bring in probably a broader set of people to provide uh, stakeholders and other folks and experts to provide their opinion on, you know, things like regulatory considerations and uh, other kinds of access and distribution related questions. And so, you know, it's a tough one to answer directly because, you know, what are the interests and then what are the conflicts specifically? But mm. I think our goal is early on to be as scientific and really throughout the process, be as scientific as possible and as open as we can be. Uh, within our constraints to getting that input uh, publicly as well. And so it, it's a tough uh, question to answer, but that is our approach. It, to me, I find it fascinating that, you know, this, com this company started uh, maybe a few decades ago just to be like a little search engine is now, you know, expanding into healthcare AI and making these significant contributions to healthcare AI. You know, I think that that's just pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's a really fun place to work. I, I liken it to kind of a modern day Bell Labs or uh, Xerox Park, which is actually Xerox Park is next door to us, uh, our base of operations in Palo Alto. And a lot of the companies that have formed the backbone of history for tech have started in one area, provided a lot of value, and then used that expertise uh, in its research and its productization to basically uh, create a lot of the modern world that we see today. And so uh, I think in many ways, it's just a, a tradition for a lot of companies in technology and in engineering. And I think when you get a lot of smart people and smart engineers together, they want to create cool stuff as well as like contribute back to the world. And, you know, I'm lucky to work on a team of a lot of folks who think uh, similarly. I'm also curious, uh, does your MD training um, do you ever like use it on a day-to-day -day basis or, you know, does it help you with the work that you do? I think it's a mixed answer. I get that question quite a bit. I would say 
obviously, because I didn't go through any kind of specialized training, residency, internship, fellowship. Uh, I'm not leaning on my medical knowledge uh, to do that work very much for sure. I think if anything, medical school gives you a good intuitive understanding of how the healthcare system works as well from the clinical standpoint, at least, as well as a good foundation in the concepts from a pathophysiological side, and then also a great grounding in the vocabulary, at least, mm. uh, both from an operational standpoint and a like a pure clinical or academic standpoint. And that's probably what helps the most. I think that in addition to that, obviously connections, you, you know, a lot of folks, uh, you just, you know, as your classmates move on in their careers, like those are the people who set the agenda on research and on policy and all these other things. And so that's helpful. But I wouldn't say that I lean on it specifically. And I wouldn't say you need an MD to do what I do. There's a lot of other great product managers and leaders at Google and outside of Google who don't have an MD, but are uh, very influential and very uh, intelligent about these problems. I think, you know, what we do is, you know, let's say we're working on a new project. I'll go try to find a couple of the best minds and then try and bring them on as consultants and, and learn as much as we can about that from them. You know, put them in touch with our engineers so that the engineers get a good grounding and understanding of the concepts. And, you know, really what we want is doctors to be the best doctors they can. And then when they can lend perspective on some of these problems, then we'll go find them. But I wouldn't say that like having an MD is requisite or even like overly helpful in this field. Uh, because oftentimes as you go further and further down the medical track, you know, your job is to be really good at this one thing in a clinical workflow. And that does close your mind off at times to what might actually be possible. And so I think medicine and the medical perspective is a very, very important, if not one of the most important perspectives you need to have, but it's not the only one that you need to have when you're thinking about this research or you're developing the products. And so, uh, I would say it's it's very helpful, but it's not necessary to have. I feel like a lot of uh, our listeners, you know, who are in the healthcare field, they don't they aren't that familiar with industry, and they're very curious, like what a product manager does. And I know you were briefly describing it earlier about how, like, you know, you'd find like the like the right people, like you know, the whether it's engineers or doctors or like the um, experts, and you kind of like make you kind of bring them together, start that conversation. Would you say? It kind of almost reminds you of like an enzyme, you know, how like enzymes, <laughs> they find their substrates yeah. and then they bring together and they create like that finished product. Yeah. Would you say that, is that kind of like what a product manager does? Well, a product manager is different at every company. And mm -hmm. so a lot of it will depend on what kind of company you're at and what team you're on and what particular project you're on. In most situations, what the product manager does is they're responsible for understanding the user, number one, and translating the user and the context and the environment in which that user operates, uh, translating those requirements to the broader team, whether it's the legal team, the engineering team, the regulatory team, safety team, everyone else, to get a common understanding and a vision for what they think the product should be and where it should go. And then negotiating between all those different stakeholders how do you actually ship something? And so that's really high level and vague. You know, another way that people look at it is a product manager is the 
CEO of the products are the ones that, you know, have to, the buck stops with them basically. Mm -hmm. And so they need to do whatever it takes, even if it's like taking out the trash or, you know, it's giving a high level pitch to this particular group or whatever. And so, you know, it depends. I think my role as a product manager is different depending on the project, the team and all those other things. But, you know, probably at most companies, you're responsible for the ultimate success of the product and then downstream of that, do whatever is necessary to do that. Mm. I was wondering, uh, you know, in the context of you guys had that big nature paper out earlier this year mm. um, with the breast cancer one. I was wondering, like, in the context of that paper, can you tell us like what your role was like as product manager and, you know, in the project? Yeah, that was a long project and we got started early on. I think my role has changed throughout the, the cycle of that project. Early on, it was just getting a basic understanding of the problem and the industry and uh, being able to translate that for all the different groups. And, and so that's early on just setting setting the tone of the problem, getting buy-in internally to get the resourcing to work on it. And then once you have that alignment, then the next goal is to go find your partners because Google is many things, but it is not a healthcare provider. And so we needed to go out and get the requisite experts to further sanity check our understanding. Then we needed to go find partners that could help us understand and acquire data to run these experiments, de-identify that data, and then help us work on it in the, the Google Labs, as you were calling it. And then, you know, my role there was to bring those folks together, contextualize a problem, try and translate between the different groups. And then really you're just like stepping aside to let the brilliant engineers that we have at Google operate. And then when they come back with the results, you know, again, take a look at them, sanity check them a little bit, then put them back in, in touch with the experts to see like, you know, are we believing what we're seeing? Do we need to tweak anything? Um, are there different approaches we should think about? And then later in the process, it is compiling those results together, making sure the story makes sense, then writing the paper. Uh, honestly, a lot of the writing was done by the engineering because the engineering team, and most of it was done by the engineering team because it is a very technically focused paper. And then working with folks who've done a lot of these kind of studies before and making sure that our methodology was sound and then negotiating with the journal authors and then, you know, when we're fortunate enough with this, with this particular paper to get it accepted, then thinking about, okay, how do we tell this story to the outside world mm -hmm. when it lands? And, you know, we're very fortunate to have a lot of very positive press coverage. And again, then I was collaborating with a lot of the communications teams internally and social media teams, as well as the engineering teams continue to tell that story and, and tell it from different perspectives, uh, both here and because we did a lot of work in the UK uh, there as well. And, yeah, that's kind of the, for that early R&D stage type work, that's kind of what the product manager's job is. That's cool. Wow. So it's like, yeah, as, as, the, as the project progresses, your, your, your role shifts too. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of as I was going to that analogy before, your job is just to do whatever the team needs for mm -hmm. it to get to a successful outcome. And in this case, the early milestone for us was to try and get a high profile publication and uh, run as good of experiments as we can, get the best partners that we can, and uh, show what's possible with deep learning. Do you think there's a next step in this project? Yeah, and I think that's what we're looking at right now is taking a lot of that underlying technology and figuring out ways of successfully or productively putting it into clinical workflow 
so that it can benefit. You know, I think one thing that people often mistake is that when you develop these AI models, they're just ready to go. But a lot of the work comes then next into the clinical validation side, which is where we're clinical validation, clinical trial, and et cetera. But you know, there it becomes an exercise in kind of two big things. First is on the user experience research side and user experience design side, figuring out how do we build a, a face around the model, so to speak, or a front end around the model that can help providers, help patients, help other folks in the clinical workflow. And then the technical refinement that is needed to ensure that you can get a good reproducible result that is accurate, even when it, you know, when the rubber hits the road with the outside world. And those are the activities that we're engaged in now in a number of areas around the world to see how we can take the, that underlying technology and insert it into different types of breast cancer workflows. Mm. I guess that leads us into our next question. We'll start with some of our closing questions for every guest. Um, what do you expect is the future of AI in medicine and where will we be in 10 to 20 years? Yeah, I think that's the, the big question that everyone's been asking themselves over the past couple of years. Um, there, I don't know is the, is the high level. I, I hope that we can do a couple things. And I think this goes first along the technical side. Um, and there's also kind of a regulatory piece of this and a clinical side. So on the technical side, I hope we can continue to show and build out new technologies for making these models safer, accurate, predictable, understandable. And that's a lot of the basic and applied research that our team does and other teams at Google and other teams around the world are all very interested in. You know, there's a lot of questions around security. There's a lot of questions around making sure that the models have as predictable behavior as you can. Uh, and that's gonna take a long time and a lot of resources and, and blood, sweat and tears to, to better characterize. I think on the regulatory side, each and every country or each and every area is gonna have to figure out how they want to think mm. about regulating these products. And that's a, yeah. a question that is, is evolving and there's a lot of debate around this right now. You know, We do a lot of discussions with notified bodies the FDA, other regulatory agencies around the world, uh, not only to think about specific products, but also try and learn from them on how they're thinking about AI and medicine, as well as at least tell them about the work that we're doing and how we've, we're thinking about it as well. I think last is on the clinical and patient side, how can we build trust I think is, is the most important thing with those mm -hmm. stakeholders, clinical stakeholders, patient stakeholders, because ultimately these tools, our goal is to help them. You know, there's been a lot of false starts in AI and medicine because we've had to learn quite a bit about the importance of UI, UX, you know, the reliability and the security of these models and things like that in, in past generations. And we want to make sure that we don't go down a road where we're not building trust iteratively over time and bringing the whole community along with us and, and, and them taking us along down the roads of problems that we need to solve for them. I think ultimately around the clinician side, we want to build tools that help them be better at their jobs and make their jobs better uh, versus just adding more steps or adding more annoyance to the workflow. Yeah. And that is a big problem. That's why this clinical validation step I was referring to earlier is, is something we invest a lot of, of resources into. And then on the patient side too, I mean, I think that's an even, I think AI and medicine, I think medicine alone is, is an opaque thing, but when you mm. layer in this technology that is very promising, 
I think there can be a lot of question marks if you're not proactive and engaging and, and understanding their pain points and questions. So those are all areas that we're beginning to invest in and, and talking to a lot of advocacy, advocacy groups uh, in these various areas to better understand. I think depending on how those three variables proceed, that will kind of define the future of AI over the next 10 to 20 years. You can see a very positive outcomes there and you can see ones where there's a lot more confusion um, and maybe not as much impact as you'd like. So that's my very indirect answer to your question. No, I think that's great though. Like, it seems like, you know, like you're actively involved in this future of AI and medicine and you're very conscientious about it. You know, like I think you and your team, like you guys know what you're doing in the sense of like the, the gravity of it, it seems like. We try, I think we're very <clears throat> humbled by the opportunity for sure. And we want to respect it as best as we can. And that's what leads us to at least think about a lot of these things. You know, we make mistakes like everyone else. And really, when we do that, we endeavor to better understand, you know, where we may have misunderstood something and then redouble our efforts to better understand for the future. That's our goal. Uh, and that's really all we can hope for at this point. But we're definitely very interested in this area, obviously. And mm. uh, we'll continue to invest in it for a while. So now one of our, our last two questions. First one is, uh, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? That's, that's a broad question. When I was 25, that was right around the time when I was taking my leave from medical school <laughs> to go into tech. Uh, so I don't know if my advice is that applicable to your audience, but I would say to your audience, I would say focus on what you're doing right now. And if you have an interest in non-traditional related work, you know, just carve out time for that. One of the, one of the coolest parts of being able to take a break during medical school was, you know, my, the, I, I could take a lot of risk and I could, I could put myself out there and, and work really hard because I knew I could come back and be a doctor, which would be amazing in and of itself. And so I think one thing I wish I had done a little bit more was really just dive deep into the beauty of clinical medicine while I was mm -hmm. in medical school, as I told you, for the first three years, I did a lot of my extra time doing exploring startups and non-traditional avenues. But, you know, in my second stint, my final, like last year in medical school, I really dove deep into the clinical side and saw a lot of awesome stuff there. And I think that's probably already what you and most of your classmates and most of your listeners are probably already doing. But that if you're going to explore the non-traditional routes, then carve out time uh, while you're in training or call about time, whatever, between stops where you're like all in on that part. I think trying to oh, balance okay. both at the same time is very difficult. And oftentimes you shortchange both sides. Yeah. And so I think my advice is, you know, to my past self would have been, or maybe even old, younger when I went to medical school, like 21, 22, was just focus on the clinical while you're there because that's what it's there for. Med medical school is not for you to become a... Uh, to work in industry. <laughs> there are other schools for that, or really the you know, school of life is for that, but uh, you know, focus on what's in front of you. And if you want to do something else, carve out concerted chunks of time where you can do that. Put your whole heart and your whole mind into it for a while. And uh, what's very nice about medicine and academia, especially, is that there are a lot of constructs for that. There's sabbaticals, there's mm. research years, there's all these other things that allow you to go do that. And then you'll get a better understanding in, in an A-B test kind of way, what it is that you think you want to do versus... A-B test? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Like you can test like 
you know, path A or path B, and then clearly oh, see, I see, I see. versus if you're I was thinking yeah, of blood types. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, that's a tech term. I apologize for that. Uh, yeah, so instead of kind of muddling your experiment by doing both at the same time, I would just do one, you know, uh, pedal uh, the metal for one, the other one, pedal the metal for a chunk of time, and then see how you feel at the end of it. Okay, that, that actually partly pretty much answered my second question, which was yeah. uh, I was going to start the second question with an anecdote where, or not even an anecdote, it seems like, a, it's not a large amount, but like a decent number of my friends who mm -hmm. have gone to medical school or currently in medical school, they seem to have like this, this doubt, you know, sometimes they're like, oh, you know, I don't know if I want to go into industry right. or go into academia. You know, they're like, I don't know if medicine is for me. Yeah. And um, they kind of like play with the, they toy with the idea of, you know, should I jump ship and go into industry or go into academia? And it, it really seems to gnaw at them. You know, and it's like, oh, mm -hmm. do, you know, it's like, do I take this risk or not? And then my, my question to you would have been like, could you like, what would you say to someone like that? Who's kind of questioning whether or not like pure medicine is for them? Like, what advice yeah, would you give it's to a them? good question. I probably at least have five to 10 conversations along these lines. I think it's becoming a when when I took my break to do this non-traditional stuff, it was like just becoming a little bit more popular of a thing to explore. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of mentors to say like, here's what you should do. And still it's kind of very nebulous path. But what I would say is to reiterate what I just said is if you want to be in medical school, like, especially if you're, you know, at least two or three years in, just finish, uh, <laughs> just, finish <laughs> like, just try it out. Like, with your whole heart and then just know that there are, will be opportunities. I think for a lot of people who are in this track, you're blessed by having too much opportunity, which produces a lot of FOMO basically. <laughs> and that FOMO results in you always kind of looking over the fence or looking oh, over yeah. the grass when it's greener. I think the, let me tell you, the grass is green wherever you are. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. And if you start looking around too much, it'll just be brown wherever you are. But, I would say do that. You know, if you, you want, know, I, I will say that med students are the uh, the demographic of like we compare ourselves the most to each other. You know. Yes, I know. It's uh, <laughs> the great it's comparers. Not, it's not a fun. It's not a fun uh, time in your life to be. Yeah, just evaluated by test scores and in a very stack ranked way. It's not super fun for the ego. Yeah. So I do empathize there. I've lived it. I would say. If you want to explore non-traditional stuff, just start reading first. There's a lot of tech publications out there. You know, you can start trying to consult with tech companies, but I would say really focus on clinical if you're doing clinical and then take concerted time to dive in deep. I think the problem that you run into when you try to do both, especially medicine and tech, is you can go down a road that you that has less options than others if you don't put in concerted time. Because oftentimes, for better and for worse, tech and any industry doesn't really know what to do with medicine because medicine trains you to be a doctor and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, you'll get a lot of opportunities, but then oftentimes you could get pigeonholed into something that you may not want to do, whether it maybe content or some other kinds of uh, tracks, which you may love. But you know, when you don't have when you don't have a schedule that represents what companies know how to like operate with, 
then you won't have as many opportunities to contribute to the team, which means you won't have as many opportunities to learn and grow and explore the types of roles that you may have a, a better fit with. You know, the world outside thinks about things like business development, product management, program management, engineering, sales, those kinds of things. And medicine thinks in the lens of like clinical workflow. So it's like cardiology, mm. gastroenterology, urology, mm. but there isn't a mapping of activities or tasks between the two. And really, if you want to explore non-traditional stuff, your goal is to figure out, okay, like, yeah, I have this medical background, but I need to pair it with something, a job that the outside world understands. And that really only comes from being able to, to work a normal schedule, like most folks. Uh, there are many exceptions to this, uh, but that's probably the best way to get a sense of tech specifically. Now, if you're advising for a startup, that's one thing, but again, you're just providing, you know, one, an hour or two every so often. Um, and then your ability to influence the team and the product and all those things may lessen, not always, but may. There are folks who go into VC and consulting. Those are a little bit more, or investment banking. Those have a little bit more uh, tried and true tracks because they've existed for a little bit longer. So Doctors all of the, who go into investment banking? There, there is like a pipeline uh, of oh, people wow. that I know, yeah, that were like after medical school, people go into iBanking. But so that, yeah, that is an option too, if people want oh, to do goodness. that. Oh my goodness. So there's a lot of it also depends on your background. If you've worked beforehand and have job experience, then you have more of a, a legible track to go down. And so a lot of it will depend on your personal experience, but at a high level, that's what I would say. So, so I guess just to um, see if I can summarize it correctly. So you're pretty much, the advice boils down to finish your, finish med school, you know, kind of just like, just like, don't get distracted, kind of like do medicine, but then carve out time for other interests if you have those interests. Um, the grass is greener wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, I think at a high level, it, would, it's, it, it depends on how far you're through. You know, oftentimes my conversation with people who are pre-med or maybe in the first year of medical school and having these doubts is different from someone who's in the third and fourth year. Mm. Generally, I would say that if you have the ability to take off like a year, that's probably the minimum amount of time I would say uh, that you should do to explore this stuff. And so if you have that ability between first and second year, second and third year, third and fourth year, I think it gets a little bit more difficult the, the further you go down the training path, but then you can potentially take off time or take a research year if you're more on the academic side uh, or if you have the financial means and you're maybe not in debt or whatever, you can take off like a year between, I don't know, uh like between your second and third year of residency or something like that um to do those kinds of things so a lot of it will just depend on your situation but that is what's nice about medicine is that there are these long chunks of time that you can that people are known to break up for various things and uh, mm. you can put it towards exploring industry and tech as well mm. wow that that was uh i, I feel like I don't want to say this is a dangerous interview, but I think uh, a lot of people are going to be helped by it and are going to consider, you know, uh, pursuing what other hobbies or, or not hobbies, but what other like passions that they may have, you know? You know, I think in the long run, it, it should work out either way. I think if you, a lot of people I talk to end up trying tech for a little while, for maybe like a year or two, and then they go, they understand like, hey, this is just not for me. And then when they, you know, re- uh, affirm and go back into the clinical workflow, then they're, they're very focused at that point. And so to some extent, you know, if you're 
if you don't have the ability to take off time immediately, just put on your blinders and get to the next thing. And then when, when you surface up, kind of reevaluate, like, is this what I want to do or not? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you do have that opportunity closer, then those opportunities definitely exist out there. So hopefully it's not too dangerous. I definitely think the other thing to think about is just remember why you went into medicine in the first place. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and lean on that, especially as we all know, medical training, and I didn't even go that far. Medical training is not easy. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And so that's, uh, I understand the, the interest in wanting to explore other things, especially when, when you're on call and, uh, or you're like in that like 10th hour of studying in the library, I get it. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a lot of beauty that you will see in the depths of anything that you go into, whether it is medicine mm. or tech and, you know, whether it is medicine right now at this phase of your life, you're putting in those hours and you're putting in the time that will allow you to help a lot of people and work on really cool problems regardless. And as long as you take maybe a longer scale timeline to your career, you can do a lot of interesting things and it's not the end of the world that, you know, you may not be immediately interested in the topic that you're studying at the time. So I don't want to dissuade people too. I think there's a lot of beauty in medicine, just as there's a lot of beauty in tech as well. Mm. Well, I think uh, that pretty much wraps up all my questions. I want to say, Thank you so much, Dan, for taking the time to talk today. It was a terrific interview. Um, Pleasure. Any, yeah. Um, any closing thoughts? No. Uh, you know, thanks for the invitation. Happy to chat uh, with you again. And uh, always happy to talk to anyone who's having these kinds of thoughts. Uh, they can reach out to me. I'm sure you can give them my contact information. Sure. Sweet.